The fundamental problem is that the British press, probably more so than any other press in any other country, has a long toxic history. You know, it is one of the worst and has been for decades on social issues, whether it be black or Muslim rights, LGBT plus rights, women's rights, the rights of disabled people. On all these issues, the British press has a very, very bad record. It loves to go after people and groups and communities. It uses these tactics in in a bid to sell newspapers, to stir up base emotions, to generate headlines, to get coverage for what they are doing and saying, and get more sales. In Britain and across the world, there is a crisis. A crisis of misinformation, disinformation, and politics, where opinions are weaponized and hailed as fact, and science is the enemy. The press, where so much of our pain is disseminated to the public and more often than not met with unkindness, hostility, and disdain. Every fortnight on Media Watch, we invite a guest who, within their field, is seeking to correct this imbalance and recenter the truth. Not through unfounded opinion, but with facts and objectivity, challenging, interrogating, and highlighting the misinformation, lies, and bigotry. But it's not all doom and gloom. We're also going to celebrate and shine a light on our successes, our wins, and our moments of triumph as a community, both within the mainstream media and our own. Welcome to Media Watch with me, your host, Shamir Sunny. Today I'm joined by LGBTQ plus activist Peter Tatchell, who has been protesting, campaigning, and fighting for LGBTQ plus rights for more than 50 years. A key figure in the early days of the Gay Liberation Front here in the UK, he continues to push for progress and equality for the LGBTQ plus community. In this episode, we'll be discussing The Observer's recent column by Sonia Soda with the headline, Stonewall risks all it has fought for in accusing those who disagree with it of hate speech. In this piece, Sonia looks at the right-wing attacks of LGBTQ plus charity Stonewall and their unwavering and integral support of trans people in the UK. However, throughout the piece, her transphobia is revealed as she comments, women must be free to express the view that is risky to allow men who self-identify as women to access female-only spaces as default. It's not theoretical. Abusive men go to great lengths to access female victims, and we have never been able to rely on institutions such as the police and prisons to protect us. She adds, through its diversity champion scheme in which 850 organizations, including many public bodies, pay it to accredit their diversity policies, Stonewall has the power to frighten gender-critical women into silence for fear of being wrongly accused of hate speech. End quote. This rhetoric feeds into the dangerously incorrect narrative that trans women should be feared and denied access to single-sex spaces that align with their gender identity. This use of fear tactics is used to discriminate against communities time and time again 
by the British press. Whether it be Muslims, trans people, black people, or refugees, it's a method that has been used by the press numerous times during Peter's career as an activist. So we'll be speaking about his experiences and the parallels that can be drawn. Hi, Peter. How are you? I'm doing fine, and I'm very pleased to join you. Thank you. Peter, you have a long history with the British press, having both been a victim to their fear-mongering and their violence, but also using them to further your own LGBTQ plus activism. Um, you've used public disruptive displays. Through that, you brought attention to an innumerable amount of issues. So I'm wondering, after reading this piece, are you really surprised that the British press are still using scare tactics in this way? I am both surprised and very disappointed. Surprised because having lived through the way in which lesbian, gay and bisexual people were demonized in the 1970s, 80s and 90s, I'm rather shocked that the British press which in many respects has changed on sexual orientation issues, now seem to think it's okay to have a go at trans people with the same kind of tactics, the same kind of vilification that we LGBs suffered decades ago. What parallels can you draw between the coverage that we're currently seeing around trans people and the criticism of organizations like Stonewall who support the trans community, and the way that other minorities have fallen victim to this over the past 50 years, whether that be um, black people or whether that be queer people or well, mainly gay people. I think it's very clear that the current anti-trans witch hunt is coming from two very clear sources. Firstly, some feminists, and they're only some, not all, uh, mostly of an older generation, and then secondly, from right-wingers, people who have never really accepted a multicultural, multisexual, multigender society. Mm -hmm. And it's really strange that these two normally diametrically opposed groups are singing from the same song sheet. They're both portraying uh, trans women, not so much trans men, but trans women as predators and a threat to women in general. And I find that not only offensive, but profoundly inaccurate because the vast majority of trans people never have been and never will be a threat to women. They cite one or two cases where trans people have done bad things. But you cannot generalize and demonize a whole community on the basis of a handful of bad apples. It's like, you know, there are people on the far right who demonize all Muslims because of the terrorist actions of an unrepresentative, tiny minority. <laughs> the very same people who demonize trans people would say that demonizing Muslims in that way is wrong, yet they seem to think that it's okay for trans people. You know, I find this profoundly, deeply shocking. Actually, I'm curious, did you find, whether it be in the, you know, the 80s or the 90s, maybe even the early 2000s, that 
were there ever issues between women's rights movements and LGBT rights movements? Was it back, back in the day? Well, I can remember in the early 1970s, the gay liberation movement and the women's liberation movement worked very closely together. We supported each other. I can remember going to a fabulous women's liberation protest outside the Royal Albert Hall in 1971 uh, on the occasion of the Miss World contest. And the Gay Liberation Front was there in solidarity. And we staged an alternative uh, Miss World on the pavement outside featuring misused, mistreated, and misrepresented to highlight the way in which sexism and misogyny treated women. Now, back in those days as well, one of the main battle cries of the women's liberation movement was, quote, biology is not destiny. Yeah. But nowadays, trans critical feminists are saying biology is destiny. They've turned the ethos of the women's liberation movement on its head. Yeah. They've negated their historic battle cry of the past. It's an interesting point that you make because here's something that I've been having kind of something that's been a real shock for me and, and quite frightening is the the way in which transcritical feminists or TERFs, as the general label is, of these women who deny transgender rights and men who deny those rights, is they use the language that social justice activists have been using for decades. Even Sonia Soda says it, where she says, we have never been able to rely on institutions such as the police and prisons to protect us. And so there's this kind of weird twisting of us and demands that people on the left or people who have been fighting for liberation for decades, such as yourself, have really honed and really pushed because we understand that the systems do not protect people who are marginalized. And this twisting of that suddenly, that, that the trans woman is in power. Have you ever seen or experienced something like that through your time over the last 50 years or so of language that you have been using to be twisted and turned back against you and, and convert you into the oppressor? Like, is there... Can you recollect any moment where this sort of language has occurred? I don't think there is an equivalent precedent. I think this is quite a unique development. And this argument about women's rights, of course we support women's rights. Trans people support women's rights. The idea that being trans is somehow a threat to women, that it's somehow colluding with the rape of women, with domestic violence, with sexual harassment in the workplace and the street. This is a monstrous distortion, a monstrous demonization of a vulnerable community that is under attack and which itself disproportionately suffers from prejudice, discrimination, hate crime, violence, and rape. There's got to be, surely, a common interest in all women, including trans women, working together to fight the misogyny, the violence, the discrimination that afflicts all women, including trans women. To make this division does not make sense. Absolutely. Was there inclusion of 
the kind of rights and demands of trans women and trans men? Was it central to the conversations that the gay liberation were front were having at the time? I'm curious because I'm not as familiar with the ins and outs of the internal policies and conversations of the um, GLF. Well, of course, trans people played a role in the Stonewall Uprising of 1969 in New York, which triggered the modern LGBT plus movement. In the Gay Liberation Front, several prominent activists were trans women. In our GLF newspaper, Come Together, we had articles about trans rights. I and others in the Gay Liberation Front were campaigning in support of trans rights way back in 1971-72. And in fact, when trans women were refused service in a cafe near Piccadilly Circus, we went there with those trans women to demand service and we refused to leave until they backed down and agreed that that discrimination would end. So trans rights has been central, got an integral part of the early gay liberation movement. And that's why those who say it's a new phenomenon are rewriting history. They are modern day historical revisionists trying to erase that past history of trans involvement in our community and in our struggles for freedom. You have extensive experience with the British press in that you have quite effectively brought issues into the headlines. Sometimes people didn't like it, Some most people at the time didn't like it, and now they're slowly realizing the impact that these kind of disruptive displays uh, had. Why do you think that now the way that the British press are talking about trans issues, what do you think is wrong in the British press that you have experienced yourself? What is it that leads them to this kind of vile, almost violent approach to trans people? I would say that in large sections of the British press, there is a very strong streak of what I would call trans misogyny. That is bigotry and prejudice against trans women, not so much trans men. And that's because what's underlying this is misogyny. They're targeting trans women because they are, to varying degrees, uh, apparently misogynists. And they don't believe in the rights of trans women. They don't believe in the rights of trans women, and they're singling out trans women as opposed to trans men, because there is this underlying sexism and patriarchy in their mindset. I believe that what is happening today in the British press is part and parcel of a much wider cultural war that's going on, where other social movements are also being targeted and discredited. So we look at the way in which negative stories have appeared about Black Lives Matter. Uh, we look at the way in which campaigns to defend the dignity and rights of immigrants, migrants, and refugees is being constantly portrayed in negative, hostile ways. This is just part of what we are going through at this particular moment when a lot of things we thought were making progress 
are under attack and in fact being dragged backwards. I think it shows that the need to maintain vigilance, the need to recognize that the rights we have and the rights we seek are not taken for granted. They're not inevitable. Um, we have to fight for them. And this backlash is a sign that we are making gains. You know, there wouldn't be a backlash if trans people were not moving the dial forward. The backlash is because they are more visible, more out and proud, more demanding of their rights, as they should be and as we support them. And this has triggered this backlash. But it's an ill-informed backlash. You know, the idea that women's services like rape crisis centres and women's centres should not admit trans women because they are a threat to other women is a nonsense. You know, I've recently spoken to several women who work in women's services. They tell me that they have accepted trans women in their services for several years, and most have done so with the agreement not only of the staff, the women's staff, but also the women clients. Uh, they say there's never been any problem whatsoever. So, you know, this is a fuss about nothing. Of course, women have to be protected against violence. Of course, women need safe spaces. But there is no evidence that trans women are a threat to those safe spaces. In Britain, there is this kind of really bizarre, really aggressive uh, rejection of the kind of fluidity of gender, as much as they may have accepted the fluidity of sexuality after, you know, 30, 40, 50, whatever, 60 years of queer people pushing and pushing and pushing. But the kind of virulent and violent nature of um, transphobia in the UK specifically is, at least I think, because of a violent nature of the press here in particular in the UK. Because, you know, you find in, for example, I'm in Pakistan at the moment, and the way that the Pakistani press, for example, talk about trans people here is in a very, very empathetic way. That's because culturally, the idea of being gender fluid is more acceptable here than the fluidity of sexuality. But the press, or there's right-wing press in Pakistan, they will not talk about trans people as if they are men. They will not talk, they will, they do not accept that you can even speak on denying uh, what they call the Kwaja Seda here, their right to self-identify. And even in America, significant progress has been made um, in the press uh, in talking about trans issues in a more empathetic, understanding way. And I'm specifically curious about the press in Britain, because you have direct experience with them where you have um, been able to get yourself on the front page or in the papers with um, public, you know, disruptive public displays. How can trans people, or how can any queer person, or even a, a person who is an activist for refugees, for Muslims, for immigrants, whoever, how can they do public displays of disruption when there is so much negativity and violence now from the press towards any dissent? I think the fundamental problem is that the British press, probably more so than any other press in any other country, 
has a long toxic history. You know, it is one of the worst and has been for decades one of the worst on social issues, whether it be black or Muslim rights, LGBT plus rights, women's rights, the rights of disabled people. On all these issues, the British press has a very, very bad record. It loves to go after people and groups and communities. It uses these tactics in in a bid to sell newspapers, to stir up base emotions, uh, to generate headlines, uh, to get coverage for what they are doing and saying, and get more sales. And I think this does mark the British press out as different from pretty much any press anywhere else in the world. And you are right. You know, we have seen this so many times before. But right now, the toxicity is particularly and overwhelmingly and of a much higher level against trans people than anyone else. I think the underlying issue is about gender policing for Transcritical feminists and right-wing commentators, they're very much wedded to the idea of a specific notion of gender and gender boundaries. So they're not open to the idea of gender identity being a range of multiple identities, that gender identity can be fluid and non-binary, because they see everything very black and white, you know, male and female women and man, masculine and feminine. And I think one of the great achievements of the trans community, together with the LGB community, is to break down those normative boundaries, categories, and barriers. We are collectively pursuing or helping to create a gender revolution that can liberate people from the boxes into which we are put by mainstream society, and sadly, nowadays, by some feminists. But I do want to emphasize that many feminists, particularly younger feminists, are totally on side with trans people. So let's not demonize all feminists. You know, there are lots of fantastic allies in the feminist movement who support 100% uh, trans people. In the work that you do, that you have been doing, as an activist in the United Kingdom. Oftentimes, you've dealt with violence, you've dealt with a lot of hardships, you've dealt with a lot of pushback from the British press. But what has your experience been personally with the press in Britain? Well, for about 30 years, I was demonized by the press on account of my advocacy of LGBT plus rights. Uh, I was variously described as public enemy number one, the most hated man in Britain, a gay fascist, even a homosexual terrorist. These are the words and phrases that the British press used against me. And this did stir a climate of hatred such that I had literally hundreds of violent attacks upon my person and upon my flat. Even a bullet through the front door and three arson attempts on my home. You know, nearly all the teeth in my mouth are cracked and chipped from these violent assaults. 
But I never gave up. I knew in my mind that no tyranny lasts forever, that I was standing for justice, and in the end, justice will win. It took a long, long time, you know, three decades, but I never gave up. Even when newspapers like The Sun and The Daily Mail contacted me, I always treated them with respect, even though I may have privately thought the exact opposite. And I, I told them what I believed in and, and why LGBT rights were just and necessary. In the end, because they couldn't browbeat me, because they couldn't drive me away and force me to give up, over time, what happened was a grudging respect developed. And that was a pretty awful experience to live through. But I want to tell that story to give trans people hope. You are going through hell right now. But in the end, you will win. Your critics will fall. And that's because you have truth and justice on your side. So don't give up, no matter how tough it gets. I, I know you won't. Keep on fighting, because at the end of the day, you will find victory. Public opinion, the press, and politicians will come around to realize that trans rights are human rights. Thank you, Peter. Hey, media watch that. No, 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 what the hell is this? I mean, this sounds different. Where uh, are this, we? This isn't our snatch. Bring back the snatch music, please. Okay, that's better. Hey, Media Watch listeners, it's Sam and Umar here from Snatched, our Gay Times original podcast about all things drag race. Each week, we've been giving our verdicts on the runway looks, speaking about all the drama, drama, and we have exclusive interviews with some of the most iconic queens in drag race history. All episodes of Snatch Season 1 are available to listen to now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Now's the part of the episode where we delve into the Media Watch archives to look at how LGBTQ plus issues were reported back in the 1980s. For this installment, we are looking at an excerpt from September 1986, where former Private Eye editor and Telegraph and Observer columnist Richard Ingrams uses the very scare tactics we've spoken about today to demonize the gay community during the height of the HIV-AIDS epidemic. Richard Ingram says in his Telegraph op-ed in 1986 that presentation on television of homosexuality as normal is increasing the spread of AIDS. To put it crudely, he writes, many are dead and will die thanks to the modern permissive approach to homosexuality that they, BBC and Channel 4, have helped to promote, end quote. Mr. Ingrams fails to tell us in this piece of propaganda just how much he personally hates homosexuals. He has said many times in the past that homosexuality makes him feel sick. So why should we imagine that anything he writes about it is motivated by logic or reason or concern? His real motivation is a strange sickness over which he obviously has no control. It is called homophobia. Mr. Ingrams is the one who should fear for his health. His neuroses are showing. That was Perry Sanderson for Gay Times Media Watch, talking about a bunch of articles and op-ed pieces from 1986. Where were you at the time, Peter? 
I was in London and was already campaigning for the human rights of not just LGBT plus people, but also people living with HIV and AIDS. And it was a big, big battle because of the scale and ferocity of the media attacks, which in many instances portrayed HIV as, quote, the gay plague. How did you combat that misinformation, Peter? How did you fight it? Like, it seems, and, you know, we've seen through the archival content as well previously, and we know from every queer person knows the sheer misinformation and disinformation that was spread at the time. It was disgusting. How did you know how to tackle it? And what was it that you were doing to combat that misinformation? Among other things, we organized pickets and even invasions of the Daily Mail's offices. And after one particular notorious article in The Guardian, we did a big picket outside their offices as well. The Guardian, to its great credit, rode back and massively improved its coverage and corrected some of the misinformation in that notorious article. It's interesting you say that, Peter, because uh, you probably are familiar with this, but there was an article in The Guardian that was pretty transphobic. It was about four years ago, three years ago, and it caused a lot of uproar among the trans community and a bunch of, well, most of the queer community because everyone was sort of shocked that The Guardian, a left-wing, a liberal paper, which is often seen as the only mainstream newspaper that supports social justice causes, et cetera, et cetera. And there was this increasing frustration among trans people and queer people in general that, wow, even the, even the Guardian isn't on side. But the Guardian hasn't actually yet made very clear its position on trans issues, and it still very much tries to stay in the middle of the trans debate. Do you think that's an issue? Well, of course it's an issue when the main liberal paper in Britain is sitting on the fence and publishing both pro and anti-trans articles. You know, I think it's a really big disappointment. And I was very glad that hundreds of Guardian staff people, both here and in the US and elsewhere, mm. wrote a joint letter criticizing the Guardian's coverage. Now, there are some very, very good articles in The Guardian. But then we just had recently in The Guardian's Sunday sister paper, The Observer, um, a very negative article. So it's like, you know, swings and roundabouts. You know, there's some good coverage and then we get negative coverage. Did you ever have an experience of where you felt that a paper was doing well in the 1980s or was it just an all-round shit show? Not so much in the 1980s, but certainly with the advent of the LGBT plus direct action group outrage in the 1990s, we did get some very good coverage about the issues we were campaigning on in The Guardian and The Independent. Uh, both of those papers really did stick their necks out and go the extra mile to report the massive scale of discrimination and hate crime that our community was suffering. Has the British press changed much during that time? Do you think it has? There's no doubt in my mind that overall, the coverage of sexual orientation issues has massively improved in the last two decades. No yeah. doubt about that at all. It's still not perfect, that's true. But the big problem area 
is the often hostile, negative, demonizing coverage of trans issues. That is the big, big failing. It's like a throwback to the 1970s or 80s on LGB issues. And that's really, really sad. How does that make you feel to see the kind of discourse and conversation that you were fighting in the 70s and 80s? I'm just curious as to what is going through your mind. You've been in the game for 50 years, more than 50 years. Like, what are the kind of feelings that you have seeing that you're seeing a repeat of what had happened in the 70s and the 80s? Normally, over time, things get better. But in this case, on trans issues, things are getting worse. And this backward regression is so, so, so depressing. Perhaps it is a sign that trans people are making progress, because after all, every social movement that makes gains does face setbacks mm -hmm. as the people who want to maintain the old prejudices fight back. But nevertheless, it is still so wrong, so disappointing, so unjustified. So tell us the consequences of this kind of violent and vulgar press coverage that was happening in the 80s, Peter? Well, the way in which the media portrayed gay and bisexual men as a threat to the public health very much is being echoed today by critics of trans people who claim that they are a threat to women. But it's the same kind of blame game. Back then in the 1980s, you know, gay and bisexual men were seen as almost like the enemy within, the harbingers of a deadly disease that was going to wipe out a very significant proportion of the British population. Because that was the early belief. I mean, I remember the Daily Express had a headline, one million are going to die from HIV. And gay and bisexual men were pointed at you are the people that are going to cause this health catastrophe and this huge death rate. Because of the homophobic and AIDS-phobic coverage, particularly of the tabloids, the red tops, public opinion on LGBT plus rights went into reverse. Suddenly, there was a huge increase in the proportion of the British public who believed that homosexuality was mostly or always wrong. It reached a peak of over two-thirds in the late 1980s. Simultaneously, people had this great fear. I can remember friends of mine who went to the local pub and were refused service because they were gay. They were told to go away and bring their own glasses if they wanted to be served. I can remember a case where a gay man was in court on some petty criminal charge the judge ordered that he be brought to court in a full head-to-toe hazard suit. And when his testimony was over, the judge ordered to be incinerated at the highest possible temperature. Jeez. I can remember the rise in queer bashing attacks, which coincided with this very hostile negative reporting around HIV and AIDS issues. I know from personal experience, doctors having a very, very askance, unsympathetic view towards gay patients. 
who were going there for just routine medical issues. I mean, several of my friends reported their GPs, you know, physically moved away from them in the surgery and told them not to touch any of the furniture. That was the kind of atmosphere that people living with HIV and AIDS and the wider LGBT plus community had to deal with. The atmosphere was so, so, so toxic. And of course, for people living with HIV and AIDS to be subjected to this kind of demonization increased their stress levels. They were fearing prejudice, discrimination, ostracism, even hate crime. Mm. And that made their condition worse. It made it less likely that they would survive. It made it more likely that they would get opportunistic infections and be unable to uh, overcome them. Mm. So the British press really, really has a huge, huge shame over the way it treated us in the 1980s and even right up until the 1990s. It's such an important point to make because we've, my generation has sort of been fed this narrative that it was bad in the 80s. And yeah, we know it was bad in the 80s, but look at the press now. Like, look at how great and progressive and civilized the press is now when actually none of this, none of the laws, except, you know, the fact that you can't be homophobic, but none of the kind of systems in which these press organizations and these publications work has changed. It's still very much this kind of old guard. The same people that were working in the 80s, a lot of them are still working in these same press institutions now. You're right. Even today, we don't have proper media accountability. You know, the Leveson report came out and suggested a whole series of reforms to ensure that the press did not misrepresent, lie and slander people that it didn't print fake news. But the government has kicked the Leveson report into the long grass. We now have a press standards organization, but it's staffed, funded and controlled by people from the newspaper industry. It's not genuinely independent. And when complaints are being made, in many, many cases, it has utterly failed to get the victim's redress. So if we had a Leveson-style press regulator, independent with real powers of enforcement and indeed fines and even possible imprisonment for the most serious abuses, I think we would get a much higher, better quality press in this country. It's it's funny you say that because so much of when I blew the whistle, my lawyer was actually the lawyer that worked in the Leveson inquiry. And so that was my first kind of introduction to before the press started attacking me. And so it's fundamentally in Britain, there is no system. If we do not have a press like regulatory organization, the cycle of the press being able to do whatever it wants to do will keep on continuing over and over again. I wanted to just briefly touch upon your work as a global activist. And you've met a lot of pushback from people on the global stage because a lot of people have said, that you're someone from England who's going abroad and using the tools that you've used in Britain in terms of disruptive displays of activism to try and make change in the global stage. I I was wondering what you have to say about that, and then we can talk about it a little more. Well, of course, all my international work is about solidarity, supporting other people in their struggle and their fight. 
and I've done so in response to their request. So, for example, when I did the two attempted citizen's arrest of President Robert Mugabe of Zimbabwe, it was at the direct request of human rights defenders in Zimbabwe who said, we need your help to publicize the abuses that are happening in our country and to shine a spotlight on the tyranny of the Mugabe regime. So I was acting on their behalf for them. And the same goes with the times I've been to Russia. It's been at the invitation of Russian activists who have asked me to go there and to bring media with me so that their struggle to hold a pride march and to defend LGBT plus rights can get media coverage and put pressure on the Putin regime. Yeah. Um, likewise, in Uganda, in Bangladesh, all these different countries, I'm responding to the requests of activists there. I'm guided by them. I listen to what they say they need, and I help amplify their issues and their voices. And you may not know, but they will know that on many, many occasions, I've managed to get them at their request on BBC World TV or on Sky News or on uh, the BBC World Service Radio so they can speak in their own name with their own voice. It's very clear that the kind of incredible work that you've been doing and the incredible impact that it's had, and you know, there's no denying that, it's really powerful and important work. I am a queer Muslim. I have, I grew up in Pakistan as a gay man in the closet, and I moved to the UK in my later teens. And I've been kind of, ever since I came into the public light, I've been really having this battle with myself between being uh, both Muslim and gay. And what I am sort of now conflicted about is the role of LGBTQ organizations and people, whether it be Stonewall or yourself, in the liberation of gay Muslims in the Global South and even in the UK. The work that you've done with LGBT Muslims and building and raising awareness of that, oftentimes you've been referred to as Islamophobic. And sometimes, many times unjustified. But I wanted to just personally ask, what do you think is, is important in, for LGBT Muslims? And why are you so vocal about LGBT Muslim solidarity? Well, put it this way, in the early 1980s, I was contacted for the first time by a lesbian Muslim in Britain who said, why aren't you campaigning for LGBT plus Muslim rights? And I said, well, no one's asked me. And she said, well, you should, because no one in our community is speaking out for us. And I said, you're right. You know, we have failed LGBT plus Muslims. We should support you. And what do you suggest? And she gave me various you know, ideas. And so every now and then in the early 1980s and beyond, I did make statements including LGBT plus Muslims as a section of our community that was not being heard and who had particular problems and difficulties, that it wasn't as easy for them to come out as, say, a well-educated white cisgender gay man, and that we needed to recognize the 
multicultural, multi-faith diversity of our community. Now, this was in the 1980s, and I was very much a lone voice. There were no LGBT plus Muslim organizations, although I tried to encourage some of the LGBT plus Muslims to contact me. I encouraged them, said, look, really, you should be doing this. You should be speaking out. Could you think about setting up an LGBT plus Muslim group? But they were all too afraid, understandably, uh, about backlash from their families, communities, and extremists within the community. So, but they said, they kept on saying, you know, we want you to do it. You know, we can't, we need you to be our voice. And they gave me the pointers to use. They gave me the arguments, the issues. So roll on the 1990s, when Adnan Ali set up Imam, the first LGBT plus Muslim group in the UK, we worked very, very closely to support Imam, to publicize their work. I got Adnan interviews on the mainstream media and in the LGBT plus press. Um, and he was absolutely fantastic. I mean, he is an unrecognized person in our community who has done so much groundbreaking work for LGBT plus Muslims, but even most LGBT plus Muslims would never have heard of him. You know, he needs to be recognized. And when Outrage set up the LGBT plus Muslim solidarity campaign about 20 years ago, that was again at the request and involvement of LGBT plus Muslim people. So we had a fantastic LGBT plus Muslim spokesperson, Ramzi Islam, who spoke on behalf of outrage on LGBT plus Muslim issues and liaised with other LGBT plus Muslims in the wider community to pick up the issues that they were concerned about. So again, it's, it's always for me being taking the cues from LGBT plus Muslims and wherever possible, where they're willing and able to give them a platform and a voice to speak for themselves. But I think we can't say it's up to LGBT plus Muslims alone. You know, it is the responsibility of the whole LGBT plus community to defend LGBT plus Muslims. You can't just bat it away and say it's their issue. It is our issue because LGBT Muslims are part of our community and we have to work in ways that support and strengthen and empower them. But oftentimes, LGBTQ Muslims, particularly in Britain, and I felt this myself, a lot of the times we deal with not just the homophobia and or transphobia or queerphobia of the press, as well as our community, but also on the flip side, deal with Islamophobia and a very violent, aggressive demonization of our identities as Muslims from the British press in particular. Post 9-11, there has been this consistent and constant attack towards Muslim communities and their quote-unquote barbarism or backwardness or intolerance, which has directly impacted and affected LGBTQ Muslims in the UK and in the Global South and refugees. You know, it stems from a dislike of the quote backwardness and or intolerance of Muslim communities. My frustration more so with the LGBT community and the press is that there is this lack of understanding that queer black people or queer Muslims experience both the homophobia as well as the violence towards their own identities, whether they be Muslim or black or Jewish. The reason why I'm having this conversation with you, Peter, is because for me, you, your work has been inspiring, but it has also been at times I've been, I've questioned a solidarity because I have felt victimized by the Islamophobia that I've seen within a lot of LGBTQ 
organizations or movements. You know, for example, you went on Spiked with Brendan O'Neill, which personally I found really hurtful because as a Muslim and as a queer person, I was trying to kind of figure out who, where does my solidarity lie? Was it with the queer community who accepts me for my queerness or the Muslim community who accepts me for my Muslimness? Because you're more experienced about this than I am. I wanted to know from your own voice, why was a, the correct platform to speak to a man like Brendan O'Neill on Spiked? And two, how do you think that would help the LGBTQ Muslim community? Well, my view is, it's important we don't just speak to ourselves within our own echo chamber. It's really important that we speak out to platforms which are not on our side. Now, it's not because I believe we can necessarily change those individual people like Brendan O'Neill, but they have listeners in an audience. And through challenging them, we can perhaps reach that audience and change hearts and minds. Um, that's the way it was done on LGBT plus rights in the 1970s, 80s and 90s. A lot of people said, I should not go on programs and debate homophobes. But I said, yes, we must go there to show why they're wrong, to produce the counter evidence, the counter arguments, to discredit them. And indeed, that is what happened. Yes. By going on all those TV and radio programs, I got to speak to an audience of millions and was able to counter those arguments, to expose their bigotry, to leave them discredited. And over time, that is how public opinion changed. Absolutely. So when I went on Spike with Brendan O'Neill, I wasn't agreeing with anything that he was saying. I was setting my own agenda on LGBT plus and other human rights issues. It's a bit like in the 1980s, Ken Livingston wrote a regular weekly column for the Sun newspaper. He got a huge amount of criticism for doing that. Why are you writing for this dirty, homophobic, racist rag? But he was absolutely right, because he was reaching Sun readers, precisely the ones we need to convince and need to persuade. So, you know, Ken was right and... I, I try to do the same on LGBT plus rights. I do speak on many, many platforms with organizations I don't agree with, but that's the way you change hearts and minds. That's a, exactly what I wanted, to, wanted you to point out because I've had the same confrontation as, do I go on this platform or not? Because I know that they said bad stuff, but I could get a new audience. Thank you so much for your time, Peter. You've been listening to Media Watch with Shamir Sunny a Gay Times original podcast series. Subscribe and listen to more episodes of Media Watch on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Make sure you're following at Gay Times on all major social media platforms for the latest LGBTQ plus news, culture, and entertainment. If you enjoyed this episode of Media Watch, be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And finally, Make sure you check out Gay Times Plus, our membership platform for everyone in our community. You can find more information at gaytimesplus.com.